0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill.
2: good afternoon i 'm Cassie Huff with you for the country hour across South Australia and broken hill it 's been a lot of focus on this wet weather and cool weather as well it 's quite remarkable. It feels like it should be August not uh, not October going into November and as a result, are you chomping at the bit to get harvesting? Are you weeks away or weeks behind where you would normally be at this time heading into harvest i 'd love to know. What's happening on your place when it comes to timings for harvest at the moment? So you can text me on 0467 922 or phone 1300 three hundred triple two eight nine one. It seems like it's quite mixed across the state. Some state, uh, some areas are, are on time and some are much later and uh, cool weather and uh, wet weather has been the driver of that. So join the conversation. Text me 0467 or phone 1300 three hundred triple two eight nine one. Also with all this moisture around, does that mean you're potentially looking at summer crops?
3: Certainly I've talked talking to farmers just recently that are either sowing or just about to sow some crops once the soil moisture, uh, soil temperature uh, is rising, which it has been. But we're obviously in a quite cool October as I sit in the studio here. It's like you feel like it could be August, but um, the days are getting longer and we are slowly warming up.
2: I'll have more on what people are thinking uh, summer crop-wise. You could also let me know whether you're considering that for the first time or maybe you regularly put in something like sunflowers or millet or something like that. Maybe you're even looking at lashing out into some um, crops like sorghum or all those sorts that aren't as commonly grown in South Australia. I'd love to know, but uh, it is such a remarkable turnaround. Uh, I mean, I know there were some mid-north crops, for instance, that were just about turning up their toes in July. But now they are underwater. Rain and cool weather has meant that the large parts of the state will start harvesting weeks later than normal. As I said, if you're in that boat, give me a call. zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one, or phone 1300 three hundred triple two eight nine one. Because I'd love to get a sense of how this season compares with even a year like 2016 or maybe 2010 um, that were also wet years. No, in 2016, actually, some southern growers weren't delivering, well, were delivering grain, I should say, uh, right into March the following year. So it certainly can push out. Craig Davis is an agronomy consultant on the York Peninsula and Mid North, who's been travelling around the state lately. Good afternoon.
4: G'day, Cassie. How are you
2: going? I'm um, well, thanks. So this wet weather, I believe October's going to be in the top 10 wettest Octobers South Australia's seen since records began and also very cool weather what are you seeing across the mid-north and New York Peninsula and other parts of the state?
4: Yeah, definitely got a mixed bag around the place, Cassie, there's some areas like the lower Adelaide plains that got a good early start to the year so they're, they're pretty close to bringing that crop in but obviously the current weather's uh, holding that off but then you've got there is the mid north um, and the upper north that uh, were quite late to get going and in fact they you know, dry sowed a lot of crops that didn't come out the ground till the uh, middle of June and then that um, cooler uh, winter and now the extended spring has really delayed that and uh, we're seeing delay to, to uh, windrowing and uh, harvesting operations so it's, it's going to certainly push things back a bit.
2: Just how delayed is it going to be do you think?
4: In some parts, you're going to see probably three-week delay in uh, harvesting in some of the upper north uh, areas where they would normally be wind-growing. Some of those canola crops have only just finished flowering.
2: We will a lot less farmers at the test, by the sounds of things, then.
4: <laughs> uh, they might be struggling to get the time off to get down. I think that will be an issue, and uh, a few might be a bit upset. They might not get uh, away for Christmas holidays, and, uh, and then, uh, like you say, the test. So I think there'll be... Um, yeah, a few, uh, a few that'll be pushing some long days to to, to try and get away and, and holidays at all.
2: I have heard that barley in particular has been responding to this rain. What are you seeing in paddocks?
4: Some of the uh, up north, uh, whilst they got that sort of June break, they did go through a bit of a dry spell, and then uh, a strong recovery with spring rainfall. There has been some uh, secondary regrowth, so late tillers and. Um, if they can keep the, the disease off that, that re, regrowth, um, you'd, you'd like to think that would produce a harvestable crop, um, but it does uh, yeah, cause some complications with, with delays. But if the weather stays mild like it's been, um, they will certainly um, reap some significant rewards from that. In other parts, um, the, the, the crop growth wasn't retarded, and so um, we're, we're just seeing some very big uh, canopies tall crops and uh, obviously some lodging from some varieties that are a little bit prone to falling over.
2: With lodging, and that's particularly a problem in oats and this is a key time for, for cutting hay. How are hay crops faring?
4: Yeah, I suppose we've got a tale of two stories. You've got early crops that have had to be cut and a drop on the ground and of course the rain on them does them no favours. So there's a bit of frustration about not being able to get hay in the bale um, and then you've got later environments uh, where they're not yet pushing into cutting and you've got, again, big bulky canopies and big crops that have probably now copped a bit of heavy rain in some of those areas with you know some of the eastern areas I deal with uh, getting 80 to 100 mils. That's uh, led to, to certainly uh, lodging which will cause some issues at, at cutting timing. Mean, it might stand up a little bit. The reality is uh, they're going to be having to skim the deck to try and get a clean cut on that and that's uh, not not going to be for making very good hay.
2: And how bad is the in-crop weed pressure as well?
4: Yeah, we're seeing some late um, weed pressure and when you look around the countryside, we've got um, obviously uh, our biggest enemy is uh, ryegrass and there's a lot of that around. Uh, We're starting to wave around in some crops. We've also got um, other other grass weeds like brome grass and uh, wild oats raising their, their heads as well. But in of the legume crops, we've got a bit of coleslaw, a bit of milk thistle, prickly lettuce and a range of brassica weeds uh, as well as the grass weeds uh, um, sort of popping up. So there'll be some pre-harvest interventions there to try and uh, limit the ongoing impact of those weeds uh, into subsequent crops.
2: We've spoken quite a bit this year about the disease pressure that's been seen in crops. You were were seeing sclerotinia around. Um, I I understand rust is actually, at it's worst in in many years, uh, rust's being reported. Just how bad is the disease pressure at the moment?
4: So I think a lot of people were pretty proactive in high-risk scenarios uh, with sclerotinia and canola, but in those environments where sclerotinia is not a common issue, there is now um, some disease showing up. There was also some delays in application because we couldn't get a hold of um, contractors to, to be able to make those applications. So I think some of those repercussions are going to uh, come to light now. But the the disease in cereals was certainly something that most people have never experienced uh, in terms of um, the rate at which the disease moved and uh, the difficulty in, in addressing it and pulling it up. It's been certainly... Uh, uh, one yeah that we haven't seen for a long time, um, through a combination of things, you know, growing varieties that are a little bit more susceptible because we haven't had the disease pressure in recent years, but also such good conditions for disease development in a name, number of crops, you know, pulse crops and cereal crops, and, and the canola definitely put a lot more pressure on uh, disease resistance within the varieties, but also um, the performance of the fungicides. So that. Uh, has been yeah difficult to keep on top of this year. And uh, again, we come across some paddocks that have, uh, we've done a, a, a very good job on and others were scratching our heads and thinking, well, we've obviously missed the timing or, or just haven't been aggressive enough there in managing some of those diseases.
2: You've been travelling around the Mid-North and York Peninsula in recent weeks. Just what is the feeling you're getting from farmers in, in paddocks?
4: There's a little frustration. Obviously, this, this, this season, I should say, is... Uh, getting a bit protracted now and um, there's a big commitment being made to the crop which is obviously a quite a large crop and, and we're, we're keen to see that get in the bin but we've still got a bit of work to do um, but yes that frustration of the, the uh, longer season with more fungicides and um, and then that extra weed pressure is certainly adding to the anxiety um, as we get into harvest but um, soon enough uh, the season will turn and we'll, we'll see the Headers out and about, and, and hopefully people getting rewarded for the for, with the fruits of their labours.
2: Well, thank you so much for some insight into what's happening out in the paddocks at the moment. Uh, there's a, a lot of um, receival sites that I think are, are waiting for the trucks to start moving and uh, the headers to, to start getting this crop off. It's, it's certainly taking its time to start. Thanks so much for joining me today.
4: No worries, Kathy. I can imagine the earlier they get started, the earlier they get finished, so they'll be certainly yeah, keen to, to see if it get delivered. So Thanks, Cathy.
2: Craig Davis, an agronomy consultant on the York Peninsula and Mid-North. I've had a text in from Andrew from the Mid-North saying it is a frustrating time. Normally we'd be finished by the test, but we'll be lucky to start this year. Thanks so much for sending that text through if you'd like to keep for having a chat about it, text me 0467 or phone 1300 222 I was allowed to talking about cereal crops there with Craig, but a lot of people are talking about what's happening with pulses. Some lentil crops have drowned, but there also could be summer crops on the horizon. I wonder if there is going to be a lot more summer production this year. Josh Telfer is a sustainable ag officer with Air EP, and he spoke with Brooke Neindorf about the last time it was so wet on the Air Peninsula.
3: I think most people going back, it's probably 30 years, 1992, which was an exceptionally wet year, and through the summer as well. We haven't quite got that far yet, but it certainly is the closest year in, in the last 30 years, yeah. Obviously, we started a fair bit of EP back in January with really high rainfalls, like record highs of 200 mils. And while that wasn't everywhere, it fell out like quite a lot of areas, so I think we're already on a above-average footing before we go into the year, and so it was certainly something I was half-expecting, um, and if we'd had average winters, well, we'll have well above average winters in spring. So, yeah, it's been quite a an amazing year and it's not finished yet, I don't think.
5: Speaking to another agronomist recently, he said we don't want to knock the rain and, and that you know because it's needed um, yep. in, in the region. But, you know, is there some crops that have been damaged by having too much rain?
3: Oh, definitely on the lower EP, it's been a lot of damaged lentil crops. And even there's been a lot of diseases and stuff that have come, which come from being in a wet environment. Obviously, earlier in the year, we had a lot of water damage um, up on upper EP and even it, uh, some of the lower EP. We had excess water, so and it's really been a challenge sometimes, even things like trafficking crops, which when they need herb fungicides, the fact that it's been so wet has led to poor timing, and that's caused disease. So some of the effects are sometimes not always direct, but it's certainly, we've seen a flurry in quarries in my job about salinity um, and waterlogging and things that, that are probably not we've not seen since the early 90s. Have really roared their head, and I'm getting a lot more inquiries about those sort of uh, problems, which is interesting.
5: Lentils is one of the, the crops we have heard of, have been quite uh, damaged in, in a lot of areas. What does it do to, to lentils? I heard it effectively drowns them.
3: Yeah, they typically don't well recover because they've only got a shallow root system anyway, so really lack um, the ability to bounce back from, from inundation, um, particularly if it's over an extended period of time. There are crops um, like favour beans more so that have got those root systems that are really well structured to Recover better from waterlogging, but then also we've had a lot of problems with favoured and behaviour bean diseases. So the answers aren't always straightforward, but we are, and um, it's just getting your head around environments where you've got a lot of water. Whereas we've had quite a few years in the last five on EP, it's been quite dry, so we haven't had these issues, but it's certainly raw its head this year.
5: Can you do anything about those crops that have been waterlogged, or are they? Can they be recovered?
3: Lentils are pretty hard to recover if they look sad, they'll probably not come back. It's probably also just managing the excess water and moisture that comes from some of those crops. So growers have been trying to spray out crops uh if they're weedy that with the lentils aren't going to come they they're pulling you in early. I've done a bit of work and people looking at summer crops and if they can use these opportunities to establish, even if it's just for cover, uh, but to protect their land has a, a real opportunity.
5: When it comes to to summer crops, are there a lot of farmers looking at, at these as an option because of the rain that, that there is?
3: It's hard to always gauge the interest because a lot of people want to talk about it, uh, but certainly I've been talking to farmers just recently that are either sowing or just about to sow some crops once the soil moisture, uh, soil temperature uh, is rising, which it has been, but we're obviously in you know, a quite cool October. As I sit in the studio here, it's like... <laughs> You feel like it could be August, but um, the days are getting longer and we are slowly warming up.
5: What sort of summer crops could be put in?
3: Different growers have different approaches, um, certainly in Upper EP, where they've got a lot more focus on soil cover. There's a lot of work with sunflowers and millet sowing um, to get cover down here. People even trying forage brassicas or things like a, a canola type, which is probably a higher value forages, but probably doesn't have the same cover effect. So things like sunflowers, millet, sorghums are generally what people are sowing, if they can get the seed, yeah.
5: And when it comes to harvest obviously being a, a wet year and, and uh, more rainy days expected is it just going to be one of those stop start harvests for a lot of people?
3: Well I hope not but everyone's <laughs> as it gets closer and closer and going well we haven't really had any drying days. Things that people may be expanding the amount of wind rowing they're doing so they can actually get a bit of diversity when their crop starts because otherwise it might be the case of all their crops getting ripe at once so if we do some more windrowing, we might be able to get a bit of an early start, start chewing away a a bit earlier and people I think going to probably have to use more herbicides to maybe desiccate their crops. So It's a bit drier, um, but farmers are pretty good at this so far. We think they are, but we'll <laughs> we'll find out I think this year um, whether all our strategies can uh, deliver the goods.
2: Yeah, I was on the Growing the Crop Facebook page and sunshine seems to be what everyone's looking for. That was just Telfer from Eerie Pete speaking with Brooke Neindorf and uh, with all these wet, wet lentils around, it's a pretty lucrative crop. So what does this mean for the market? William Alexander is a pulse trader with Australian Grain Export and says everyone is keeping a close eye on supply, but there should still be plenty of pulses for the market.
6: This always happens when, when you have weather events, whatever they are. This, you know, at this time of year, obviously, it has, has an impact, an actual impact on the crops, but also an impact on the market. So I guess the two things we could talk about, One would be that overseas and you know all these markets overseas, all they're hearing is that you know there's floods and there's water and there's rain and there's all this stuff. Um, So they assume that uh, that means that you know our lentil crops are getting smaller or not going to happen or whatever they're thinking. So you know prices generally, people turn bullish on that kind of news, and that that's definitely been happening. The other thing is the actual physical nature of this, this delay. So the rain is obviously delaying everything. So this means we've got a bit of a squeeze at the front here where people have obviously itching to get lentils into containers and itching to get lentils into vessels, or whatever, with, to, to, for commitments overseas. And that is all being delayed, slowed up, or, or can't even happen in some cases. So that also is, is pushing people to try and, you know, grab lentils when, when there are no lentils to grab. So that also will create a bit of, you know, very very bullish as far as price goes, isn't it? And we're seeing that has happened in the last couple of weeks. Prices have gone up, and then obviously the the actual effect of the weather on crops in South Australia and Victoria, it, it will have a negative effect on some places where well, we've seen, you know, crops in Victoria obviously underwatering patches, things dying in patches. Obviously, people having quality issues on lentils potentially, which we won't. You know, until we see some kind of harvest, we don't know what those are really. And then on the flip side of it, some you know more marginal areas that have had lots of rain that are really good. So, they're, you know, apart from all the bad news, um, there is some good news too.
5: What sort of prices are Lentils getting at the moment?
6: Um, today they just went up to, well, 8, 850 Port Adelaide type numbers and over over 800 sort of upcountry uh, Victoria. That Port Adelaide price has probably gone up. You know, well over a hundred dollars in the last couple of weeks.
5: Were there more lentils put in this year around Australia that might be helping those that have been damaged sort of cover that that damaged sort of deficit? I guess.
6: Yeah, our lentil acreage usually stays pretty steady. Um, I mean, there's places that always put them in. I, I mean, I am seeing you know more lentils grown in marginal areas, and that definitely you know in the marginal area where usually rainfall is an issue. Probably not an issue this year because everywhere should have had more rain. But yes, production-wise, we're hearing some excellent yields from some places, so that may offset some of the losses from the you know the really bad weather that other people have had. So there's always a bit of you know there's, there's always two sides, and um, it will balance out a bit. I, I do think that the the news I'm hearing from people spreading around the market and from photos flying around the market overseas that um, people are overstating the losses and the, you know the, suddenly the crops half of what it was I think is mainly nonsense uh, but obviously you know that that's what happens in the, at these times of year It'd be the same if we'd had a blistering heat wave of 45 degrees right now and you know that would have wiped out some of the crops but certainly not all of it or anything you know we're still going to have a very very decent large lentil um, production I would suggest.
5: Who are the biggest buyers of, of Australian lentils at the moment?
6: Uh, at the minute, what well, we've probably seen, India, India's been very active uh, in the market. Their government they, they increased their minimum support price for lentils, so their buyers uh, has been lots going to India. Pakistan have also been pushing to buy some. So again, I think their whatever stocks, local stocks are low, and you know they've got decent prices for lentils. So we've seen Pakistan, Bangladesh will be there to buy heaps uh, as normal. They, bought, uh, they were the biggest importer of Australian lentils last year. Nothing really should change there. They'll be there to buy plenty more. I just think at the minute they've probably had quite a lot is already there in bulk vessels and other things that has kind of kept them a little bit quiet. So they haven't jumped in and really panicked or anything like other other places and you know but they'll be there next year for sure to buy plenty of lentils. So there's, there's lots of demand for lentils, nothing's changed there.
5: So William just to, to clarify you were saying that there is a lot of negative talk around obviously with all this flood um damage that is happening but there could still be, you know, positive signs for for the harvest there going forward.
6: I think so. I mean, as long as it, you know, anything can happen with the weather, this could, it could rain for another month and then, you know, things will obviously be different. But, yes, you know, I, you'd have to say that the weather in Victoria is, is definitely, you know, it's going it's to cause problems and issues from a production and the and quality side of things. And then, but then in other areas, you know, you, you'd help, it, would have, it would have helped things elsewhere. And the same in South Australia to a lesser extent. We're still here, we're hearing of, you know, damaged, you know, crops. Uh, due to the wet weather, even in South Australia too. So, you know, I think as long as things, yeah, it, it's going to stop raining sometime, and then um, and the harvest will commence at some point.
2: William Alexander from Australian Grain Export speaking to Brooke Ninedorf. to get a sense of what is happening with the rain. Simon Timkey from the Bureau of Meteorology joins me. Good afternoon. G'day, Cassie. So, there's a bit more on the way at the end of the weekend. What's happening?
7: Yeah, that's right. But, uh, but an easing trend until then. Um, looking at the satellite picture at the moment, we've got quite a bit of cloud over the, the agricultural area and far south of the pastoral districts, but mostly clear skies over the, the north and the, and the far west of the state. Uh, uh, and about the agricultural area, there is a little bit of shower activity. Looking on the radar at the moment, um, Uh, a a fair bit of shower activity over the upper and lower southeast districts, a bit about the Mount Lofty Ranges and even the odd shower uh, uh, near the west coast of Eyre Peninsula there. Uh, And I think in in the the west-to-southwesterly airstream that we're in, those showers continuing on and off for the rest of today and and into Friday morning, probably see a a bit of an easing of those showers um, during Friday afternoon. And whilst those showers ease... We'll start to see further showers and, uh, and isolated thunderstorms develop in the far west during Friday as uh, another low pressure system moves towards our, our western border from, uh, from Western Australia. That's looking like uh, uh, quite, a, quite a dynamic system which will move eastwards over the weekend. So for Saturday, um, I think the parts of the west and north of the state, um, particularly the west, will we'll see frequent showers, isolated thunderstorms. And some of those thunderstorms in the northwest could be severe with um, gusty winds and locally heavy rainfall. Further south, though, not a lot of weather um, for the uh, sort of central and eastern parts of the agricultural area on Saturday. I, I think just isolated showers near southern coasts or about southern coastal districts, but not expecting any significant uh, sort of totals over the southeast or central and eastern parts of the um, agricultural area on Saturday. But Sunday, as that low moves across uh, to the south of the state and extends a trough over us, we'll see those frequent showers and and isolated thunderstorms move across central and eastern parts. And like Saturday in the northwest, some of those thunderstorms could be severe with uh, gusty winds, locally heavy rainfall, possibly some hail in those storms as well on Sunday. So some significant weather. Coming in the West on Saturday, central and eastern parts on Sunday, uh, and quite windy conditions as well, uh, with a pretty tight uh, isobaric gradient about the that low, so we 'll see quite windy conditions on both of those days and then early next week, a, a couple of uh, um, dynamic, uh, vigorous cold fronts moving up from the southwest which will keep the showers going, particularly over the agricultural area and the far south of the pastoral districts with those showers easing sort of midweek. So some, some wet days on the way later in the weekend and early next week. Um, the sort of rainfall totals that we are talking about for that period out to the end of Monday, generally the order of 5 to 15 millimetres, but increasing to 15 to 35 millimetres about the agricultural area and with thunderstorms. And the thunderstorms could, you know, produce uh, uh, locally higher totals than that even, could see some falls in the in the 30 to 50 millimetre range. So not sure that that's what, uh, what everybody's wanting to hear at this time of year, Cassie, but, uh, but unfortunately that's the way it's looking for, for late in the, the weekend and early next week with more showers and, and possible thunderstorms on the way.
2: Yeah, dropping down to the low teens in some areas, temperature-wise.
7: Yeah, the two... Um, cold fronts moving through early next week are really bringing up some some very cold air. So, so temperature's going to be well below average early next week.
2: Mm. Yeah, no, sunshine is the order. If you could arrange that, that'd be great.
7: <laughs> I'll do my best, Cassie. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Thanks. Simon, Simon Timkey from the Bureau of Meteorology. The Upper Western will be sunny tomorrow. Overnight temperatures will fall to between 14 to 11 degrees. Daytime temperatures reaching 23 to 28 degrees. The Lower Western also partly cloudy. Uh, overnight, it's getting down to 9 to 12 but the daytime temperature's reaching the low 20s. More to come on the country hour as we approach 1230.
1: You're listening to the country hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill,
8: this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff.
2: Good afternoon. I am Cassie Huff. It's great to have your company today. We know the scene has been set for water buybacks to be reintroduced into the water market following money being allocated in the budget. It's been talked about for some time, hasn't been announced yet, but there's certainly a sense out there that it will be. So soon you're going to hear from the last irrigator on the River Murray in South Australia about what he makes of the decision to allocate water to that and what all this water coming down the River Murray has meant for him
9: would we personally involve ourselves? I guess it is simply one of economy. If the value of the water being paid for buybacks outstrips our ability to utilise it for irrigation, unfortunately we'd probably be a group who would have to seriously look at the option of using it.
2: It's an area that has been under pressure in in years gone by with a lack of access to water or um, quite salty water as well. So you'll soon hear from the last irrigator on the River Murray about some of the issues facing that region at the moment. Also, I'm going to tell you about an animal you may not know is farmed. They're slow-growing produce a myriad of colors and can be either decorative or edible. I'll tell you what they are. So, but first Matt Coleman has the latest in the news, Hi Matt.
8: Hello Cassie. In the news this afternoon, the jury in the rape trial of Bruce Lerman has been discharged after fears of misconduct by a juror. Bruce Lerman has been on trial in Canberra for 12 days and the jury has sat for 5 days. He was charged with sexually assaulting former Liberal staffer Brittany Higgins at Parliament House after a night out drinking in 2019. The Doctors' Union says the state's ambulance ramping problem could take two terms of government to fix unless it acts now. The Chief Industrial Officer, Bernadette Mulholland, has told a parliamentary inquiry into resourcing of the ambulance service that the hospital system requires immediate funding and support. And the state government is set to revise flooding predictions for the Riverland, with even more water now expected to come across the border from Victoria. The Environment and Water Minister, Susan Close, will meet mayors of Riverland councils today to discuss the flooding predictions for early December and repairs planned for a number of levees. Susan Close says given the weather in Victoria, the current prediction of 120 gigalitres per day will be increased. More news at one o'clock.
2: Thanks for that. Matt Coleman there with your news headlines. More to come at one o'clock. Now, this recent wet weather, it's not just hitting crops and farmers, it's also hitting your hip pocket. The latest Consumer Price Index data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics shows annual food price inflation reached 9% in the September quarter. That is the highest annual rise in food prices since 2006. The hike is driven by high input costs for food production, so that means energy, labour, transport, fertiliser, things like that, as well as now this wet weather damage that's affecting the production as well. Now this comes as the Australian Parliament's Agriculture Committee has begun an inquiry into food security in Australia. Committee Chair Meryl Swanson says it will examine the ways to strengthen and safeguard food security in Australia, focusing on local food production and the impact of supply chain distribution on the cost and availability of food.
10: We are at a very critical time, not only in Australia's agricultural future, but also in the world. We face pandemic, we face weather and climate with in the middle, you know, we're seeing a war that's erupting and, and going on still in Europe. And it's one of those situations where in terms of food security, we just cannot take anything for granted. So as we speak, farmers that are losing what they thought would be bumper crops due to flood, losing stock that they've paid absolutely premium prices for, Although we are an exporting nation, it is beholden on us as a country and on us, quite frankly, as a parliament to ensure that we remain one of the, the world's most food-secure nations and we do our bit to feed the rest of the world and thereby grow our agricultural sector.
0: Australia currently doesn't have a food security policy. I've talked to farmers who say that they think That would be integral to ensuring that in the future Australia has adequate food security. Is that something that you think will be discussed as part
10: of this inquiry? Well, I'm looking forward to receiving submissions and evidence from farmers and farming peak bodies around the country. So I don't want to preempt what the inquiry might find. But I have certainly heard those comments made. And that is part of the reason why the Minister referred this inquiry on. So really looking forward to receiving those submissions and collecting and garnering the thoughts of our agricultural professionals across Australia to really look at how we do keep Australia food secure. And we'll Obviously, get the uh, the recommendations and the shakedowns out of that, and, and you know what policy comes from that uh, is yet to be determined. What will this inquiry be looking into as far
0: as Australia's role in the global supply chain?
10: So, what we're looking at in terms of this inquiry is the national production, consumption, and export of food. So. That will come into it, where we send our food, where those export markets are and, and where our food is going. Uh, we're also going to be looking at things like key inputs such as fuel, fertiliser, labour, uh, and their impact on production costs and the potential opportunities and threats of climate change on food production in Australia. But getting back to your specific question about exporting, uh, you know. Ag is one of our top exports behind uh, the extractive industries and it is something that we want to grow. So how we do that sustainably to keep our own people fed at a fair price, you know, that's one of the big questions. We know that food has become more expensive. Uh, I don't think it's lost on anyone that we were paying, you know, double digits for, for lettuce during a point of the year. And we also know that some of our Indigenous communities pay extraordinarily high amounts for food. And we know that some of our other rural and remote communities as well uh, have incredibly inflated food prices. So I think this is something that the inquiry would also like to hear from people about.
0: There are further price rises expected for food in the next quarter going into 2023, according to Rabobank. Is there anything that you think the government can do more immediately to help Australians pay for a basic nutritionally balanced meal?
10: Again, uh, I am really looking forward to the outcomes of the inquiry. And I know that uh, what comes out of this inquiry will help shape policy So I'm not going to preempt that, but I'm very much looking forward to the outcomes of the inquiry, the recommendations that our committee will put forward to the Minister. And uh, just to note that submissions will be open until the 9th of December. So this is not sort of some long range 12 months inquiry. We are looking to get these ideas, suggestions and indeed, you know, really a lie of the land on what is going on in Australia with food production and food security so that we can make these recommendations to government.
2: Australian Parliament's Agriculture Committee Chair Meryl Swanson speaking there. With Jane McNaughton. And uh, there's been a lot of focus uh, in the last couple of days on uh, buybacks, the potential for buybacks to be introduced with money being put into the budget to to, uh, potentially finance that. And there's also been so much water coming down as well. And so this is all Coming to a head at the Murray Mouth, now dairy farmer Sam Dodd is the final irrigator to take water from the River Murray before it flows out to sea. His farm is on the shores of Lake Albert near Meningi, one of only two dairies still working in an area that used to support around 20. Sam sat down with Karen Hunt to discuss the Murray-Darling Basin plan, the floodwaters, buybacks and whether the plan will make a difference to his operation
9: well i guess in some ways the basin plan is is sort of it's a two-edged sword for someone at the bottom end of the system because yes we've been the great beneficiary of the plan in terms of its environmental outcome and we've always maintained not just me personally but us collectively as irrigators down here we need an environment or a river that actually flows to the bottom end of the system for us to be irrigators because we went through that millennium drought period where we simply couldn't irrigate for six years both from the lack of levels of water and then the salinity of the water. Since the basin plan is being implemented we've had a return of better quality water and certainly water levels to pre-2000 levels and pre-basin plan levels and from an irrigation point of view it's been of great benefit but on the sort of flick side of it is the cost of water and the cost of owning water since the Basin Plan is being implemented, obviously prices have vastly escalated, basically fivefold in the last seven, eight years since the Basin Plan, which to us with our commodity has actually marginalised our ability to continue to be irrigators.
11: just spoke then about the cost of water. What do you actually pay for when you talk about the cost of water?
9: There's two ways of using or acquiring water from irrigation. You can either own the permanent entitlement, which then allows you to use water at whatever level it's allocated on on an annual basis. The cost to own that permanent water has gone up literally fivefold. Since the Basin Plan, it was around $1,500 a meg, and now it's over $8,000 a megalitre. own the piece of paper to be an irrigator, even on a small scale, you're talking a multi-million dollar capital. Or the other way of going about it, you simply lease water on an annual basis. Now, in a year like this, water is dirt cheap. But whereas three years ago, when there was a drought on New South Wales, you were talking $1,000 a megalitre to buy water. Now, for daring are cut off to be profitable. was probably around $250 a megalitre.
11: What does it mean for you for this water that's coming down the river now?
9: The extra flows down is is a godsend. It's providing not just ongoing improvement in water levels or security of water levels, but it's just flushing the system out. So it's extraordinarily good for the quality of the water. There'll be a short-term blip in as much as there's a lot of debris being flushed back from wetlands in the like into the river. So there will be a short-term blip in terms of some water quality issues. But in terms of salinity, it's going to be a vast improvement.
11: Well, speaking of the environmental benefits, there's been a lot of talk lately about buying back water for environmental usage. What do you think about that? Is that something that you would ever consider?
9: Uh, buybacks play a part in, in the Basin Plan. I mean, whether the Basin Plan is right or wrong, it's basically a good compromise number that they've come up with. They've tried by every means to acquire adequate water and as a consequence, we um, we're battling to get that last bit of water to, to implement the basin plan. So it's almost inevitable that other another method has to be th- come up with, and that unfortunately is buybacks. And I say unfortunately because when other efficiency methods have been used, although water's been returned to the environment, it leaves water for productive purposes. Whereas buybacks simply removes water that can't be used other than the environment which is an unfortunate means now there's always willing sellers there's always somebody who's prepared to leave the industry but unfortunately when water leaves to buybacks it doesn't go on to the next irrigator would we personally involve ourselves i guess it is simply one of economy if the value of the water being paid for buybacks outstrips our ability to utilize it for irrigation unfortunately we'd probably be a group who would have to seriously look at the option of using it
11: There was some mention of buybacks in the budget. How do you regard that?
9: Personally I just see it as a reality that it was going to come into the budget. Since we've had a two change of of governments both at a federal and state level, both have clearly stated pre election that buybacks was going to be part of the options of their policies. So they haven't given us told us the dollar amount but nor would they, because otherwise we'd know exactly how much we're going to get per megalitre and one suspects it'll probably be by tender process that the water will be acquired. But all the talk is of high security water, it'll be at least 50% more than the current value, which is around $8,000 a megalitre. So, you know, time will tell, but I think we'll see sooner rather than later what's, what's going to happen.
2: Sam Dodd, a dairy farmer from Meningi, speaking about what the current water fortunes mean for him, one of the uh, last irrigators on the River Murray before it flows out to sea. Now, um, I did ask you a question at the start. Um, I wasn't really soliciting for answers, but I'm really glad some people have actually texted in to try and answer my question about the animal I'm going to tell you about soon. It's uh, You may not realise they're farmed. Now, the description I've given is uh, they're slow-growing, produce a myriad of colours and can either be decorative or edible. Now another thing I probably should tell you is they're not actually being farmed in South Australia but in the Northern Territory but it's just so interesting that I really felt that I had to tell you about it. Now Callan has guessed silverbeet, it's not silverbeet but uh, I will tell you what it is up next it's 16 minutes to one
8: This week on Landline, inside the Glasshouse Powerhouse,
7: east of Melbourne. We had to keep innovating growing, you know, we needed better taste more kilos but do it for less that had been our mantra and we stuck with it through some pretty bleak times
1: and how farmers in parts of new south wales
7: and victoria are coping with flooding and relentless rain that's Landline sunday at twelve thirty on abc tv and streaming on abc iView.
1: you're listening to cassie huff on abc radio south australia and broken hill
2: a lot about the River Murray, and just heard from dairy farmer Sam Dodd from Meningi. We've had a caller from Glenn from Goolwa. Good afternoon. Um, I think uh, Glenn's called in, I'm assuming, to do with the uh, uh, River Murray and the high flows and how things are looking at. We had yesterday a caller talking about how cockle production could be affected. Glen, good afternoon. Oh, good afternoon, Cathy.
4: Look, I live Gilbert and I've watched the river when it has been completely uh, dry and grass growing on it. I think there's two
2: things to consider. I think I'm so activity. sorry, Glenn. Your line is just absolutely terrible. Maybe try calling back, because um, I'd love to hear um, what you're seeing down there. It sounds like it's amazing. I think I'm going to do a trip down just to see it myself. So try calling back, but that, that line was no good, sorry. Um, so I'll keep going. Sean from Mount Gambier has given a, um, a, a guess at edible flowers from the description I gave. It's not. It's actually giant clams. Australia's largest exporter of coral and exotic marine life has this year celebrated its largest ever spawning of giant clams. And its aquaculture facility near Darwin, Monsoon Aquatics is now growing thousands of baby giant clams which have just started to show their colour. And this is important because the colour of clams plays a big role in their value. Matt Bran went along to check it out.
12: Hello, my name's Sophie Dyer, I'm the facility manager at Monsoon Aquatics in Darwin, East Arm. So we're looking at our larval rearing tanks for our baby giant clams. They're six months old and they're just beginning to show their colours now, they're starting to grow and looking really happy.
1: For our radio audience, Sophie, can you tell us what, we're, what we can see in this tank because uh, they're far from giant.
12: Yes, there's thousands of baby clams. They're probably three to five mil in size and we're just seeing golden and tiny blue flecks coming through now.
1: And it looks like they're sort of, uh, they're they're heaped together like little mates.
12: (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't matter what we do. They always cuddle up together. We separate them out, but they always seem to come back in and, and nestle in against each other.
1: Is that a survival thing, do you think?
12: Oh, probably safety in numbers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> bit of comfort for each other.
1: And you mentioned a little bit of colour starting to shine through. And that's really important, isn't it, when you're in the business of selling giant clams?
12: Absolutely. colours everything. Where The goal is to get nice blues and, and tealy greens. Um, but it's a bit of a mixed bag for what you get. You can spawn from adults that have the most desirable colors and and you still get goldens and and the browns in there so we're just hoping to get majority blue this time
1: all right so blues on trend
12: on trend that's the fashion in clams at the moment
1: Uh, the adults are in a tank behind us how easy or how challenging is it to get these things to reproduce
12: Well we have a little bit of a secret weapon so we've got serotonin that we can actually inject straight into the clams gonads and that triggers the happy feeling and then they do what we need them to do we can simulate that spawning that they would do naturally in the wild
1: And one adult can produce how many little ones?
12: Millions, millions
1: And so from these little specks at the bottom of a tank that we can see now what is their journey? Tell us a bit about that
12: so it's six months old now, They've, their journey has just been living in this tank, we're growing them out here. They probably have another year to grow out to be sizeable, ready for sale and to, to be able to be shipped. They're quite delicate at the moment, they're fragile so we would want them to stay here until they're a bit more hardy and can, can be shipped.
1: And how old and what size are they? before you can sort of, yeah, I guess sell them to people.
12: I think size is more important. If they, if they get to the size we want them to, say maybe five, six centimetres, then they're, they're ready to grow. Whether that's 18 months or whether they're super quick growers and that's only a year, then that's fine. As long as they hit about five centimetres, we're ready to sell.
1: And where are the markets for giant clams?
12: All over the world. So we sell domestically, we sell in Australia. Um, a lot of the Asian market and even the US really love giant clams.
6: Yeah,
12: yeah they're, they're beautiful in, in home aquariums, public aquariums. And even in Asia, the clam meat is very desirable.
1: Just a, And just a certain part of the clam is, yeah. is good for eating, yeah?
12: Yeah, the abductor muscle. That's a tasty, tasty little scallop that you get in
8: there.
1: <laughs> Can we check out the adults in the tank behind us? Yeah. Um, because um, I guess this is the end game. Big clams, lots and lots of colour, yeah?
12: Lots and lots of colour. Yeah, these are. this is the goal here. We're looking at clams that have beautiful royal blues and glittery like a starry night. There's teal blues, which is definitely the goal. That's what we want to see in our baby clams.
1: If you buy one, how easy is it to look after a giant clam?
12: It's tricky easy if you know what you're doing like anything yeah. you need to have a stable aquarium you need to have access to fresh um, salt water and be able to feed regularly and then they'll be happy with adequate lighting yeah
1: and they'll outlive you
12: absolutely these giant clams can live over a hundred years old in the wild
1: wow. how big can a giant clam get Sophie
12: Oh, having a piece of string it's sort of yeah if it's if it's happy in an environment that's not restricted yeah you could get over over a meter big
1: but if if they're in an uh, an aquarium setup, they'll sort of they'll sort of grow to their conditions it's not like you're gonna have to worry about your tank bursting
12: no they will grow to their conditions and they're they're slow growing so i feel like you would have adequate time to get the next tank size if he's if he's outgrowing your tank that you have
1: such an incredible facility out here. Sophie, what do you love about the job?
12: Oh, working with anything from the, the ocean is amazing. It's hard to have a bad day when you've got beautiful fish and coral and clams looking back at you.
1: Yeah, and the clams are such a, a, a new part of this business. It's sort of just starting. Where is it all heading?
12: Oh, we hope to do the next spawning end of November and keep the spawnings going every three
2: to six months from now and have a constant supply of clams ready to go. Sophie Dyer, Facility Manager at Monsoon Aquatics in Darwin. Apparently your average giant clam for people's fish tanks can sell for up to $1,000. 10000 if they're going into those big public aquariums. So uh, pretty lucrative there. Now before I get on to the last story, we've got Glenn from Goolwa back again. Hopefully this line's a bit better. Good afternoon. My hope so, good. Oh, much can better. You yeah, you, were, you sounded like a robot before.
4: A different phone. Look, um, living down here, I've watched the Murray for many years and believe me or not, um, I think that the foundation of this river is based on making sure that it's not overproduced. I think we're at full production on the river now on an average year, forget this year, but on the situation of average year, if nothing else is going to satisfy getting the 450 litres for the environment, which is so necessary as a foundation of this river system, we have to get to buyback. I'm sorry, they don't want, like go on the properties. The buyback has got to happen because it's got to happen down here that we get that 450 leases and the river base has got to be looked after before we talk about any extension of irrigation on the Murray.
2: Thanks so much for for calling in, and sorry it took a couple Thank of you. goes, but uh, good to hear from you. Thanks That's okay. for you. I'm sorry about my phone. That's okay. No worries. We got Bye there then. in the end. Finally, to- <laughs> finally today, um, this is a lovely one. From the far flung corners of the country, ten female photographers have become. Friends they didn't know they needed. The Beauty in the Bush Collective started on Instagram, but as Ali Bradfield reports, within six months the group had established a newspaper publication called Bush Journal, which has now been turned into a book called Bush Life.
11: Fed, you know, how many thousands of tonnes of sheep feed out by shovel? It just, I can't even bear to think about it.
0: In a desperate drought, Blackall sheep farmer Lisa Alexander forced herself to pick up her camera.
11: I really embraced photography in the drought because I needed, it was my coping mechanism, that even though we were in the midst of, you know, an incredibly hard drought, there is we are still surrounded by beauty. And it is everywhere. You just need, people just, or I, well, I just learnt to look for it. I taught myself how to look for the beauty because really... There wasn't much else that was positive about what we were doing every day. And, you know, the, the death that we were seeing in the sheep that weren't surviving and it gave me something else to focus on other than just the horrendous situation that we were in.
0: The group came together during the height of the pandemic when a lot of their work had been cancelled. Jessica Howard, who grew up on a property near Biloela, craved that connection with her rural roots after spending 10 years in the UK. Was
13: Basically, just we came together as an Instagram group to share our work. We initially set up an Instagram loop, which is, uh, you know, nudging our audience uh, to the next person in the group. And it was really just to showcase, you know, the beauty that we were finding in our day-to-day work. Within six months, we established paper, a newspaper called Bush Journal. We were capturing all of these amazing images and hearing all of these great stories, and we thought they deserve a permanent home. And so the collective over the course of about two years now or 18 months um, has really become more than an Instagram group. Um, We produced this paper and now uh, the book, Bush Life. It's really just the most beautiful hardcover coffee table book, thick, lovely pages with all of the really, really stunning photography that you um, would find on our Instagram account. So a lot of my work is of my family on the property. A lot of the work of uh, the other women in the group are of their children and their farms and uh, their cattle and their sheep. Um, So it is a really kind of personal um, exploration, I think, of what it's like what life is like in rural Australia. And, you know, these are stories of worry about, you know, your family's future and, you know, what will your children do? Will there be a place in in these industries for your children? And, And I think that these are absolutely universal issues.
0: While their love of photography brought them together, they found a community.
13: Photography can be quite an isolating career. You know, you're often working by yourself and travelling long distances to get to jobs and you don't work in a company, so there are no colleagues to come home and come back to the office and bounce ideas around to. And that's been the really beautiful thing about the collective. We, you know, shared daily WhatsApp chats about our lives and not just photography, but about our lives. And, you know, we initially sort of started out as work colleagues, really, but we've all become really firm friends. And that's the best thing about it.
0: Henrietta Attard from Homebush near Mackay
14: says she's always been drawn to bush life and
0: it's very quiet beauty.
14: The challenge of capturing beauty in that everyday kind of work life. So when you're a farmer, things are just constantly happening. You're always on the go. There's no time to set up for a photo shoot. There's no time to work around the weather or anything like that. You just have to take nature as it comes and... Um, I guess that is a challenge but when you're out in the bush as beautiful as what this is it's really not that hard to be honest you just have to keep your eyes open
0: and how is there a line or how do you feel about sort of almost glamorizing how hard it is you know all these photos are just stunning but obviously knowing full well the the reality of how tough life can be at times
14: for me, photography, it's not so much about glamorising, it's just recognising that there's beauty there. And I think, I think we need to do that. I think that the hard times and the yucky bits, the downfalls, every failure that you have, every drought or failed crop, You remember those, you don't always remember the beautiful stuff and so that's why photography is so important, that's why these images are so important.
0: While their work is beautiful, the reality of their lives on the land is often tough. Jessica Howard wants the women's work to show rural Australians are some of the most environmentally conscious people living with the effects of climate change.
13: A lot of the women in the group, just in the space of you know, the 18 months or two years that the collective has been around, they've been in quite horrible drought, um, you know, to, to having to deal with floods. And I think something that we all agree on is rural Australians are really on the precipice of climate change. And, um, you know, they're exposed to really the, harsh, more, the more harsh effects of climate change. Rural Australians are some of the the most environmentally conscious people that we know you'll meet a farmer and he'll be able to tell you exactly what type of grass you know is in every single paddock of his twenty thousand acres and what temperature they the, the grass germinates in and rural Australians are very conscious of the environment because
0: it's their livelihood. Photography has also been the thing that's connected Jessica Howard back to her family after being away for ten years.
13: Photography is what brought me closer, particularly to my dad. He's a very kind of country dad and we didn't have a super strong relationship because because I didn't come back to the farm and photography really kind of transported me back home and helped me connect with home.
2: Jessica Howard ending that report from Ellie Bradfield and that book Bush Life launched this week. You can check out some of those amazing form photos at the ABC Australia Instagram page or go online to abc.net.au slash rural. That's it from me. Time out for news as we approach one o'clock.